which I think it, it does really, um, really closely tie in actually in, in, in much stronger ways actually to the contemporary theatre that I've heard about today than I, than I thought it was, that's great. Um, so yeah, so I work on 18th and 19th century colonial literatures and <coughs> humanities. Um, so I'm going to give you um, one very specific example from my research, which is um, the theatrically contagious example of the colonial obia practitioner. Um, so the figure that you that you see on the left here is a, a real and fictional, well in this case fictional, but a real person. Uh, practicing an African-Caribbean syncretic set of magical, medical and spiritual beliefs called Obia on the plantation in the 18th century. <coughs> um, and these people used African-Caribbean um, medical practices and spiritual practices to bring health to friends on the plantation or the reverse to cause illness and death to, to enemies, to slave owners. Um, and Obia was a kind of trickster practice, which you can see from that visual representation as a playbill from the early 19th century. Um, it was associated with wizards, with quacks, with performers, and so it became very much bound up with a kind of antagonistic uh, um, relationship to Enlightenment, Western epistemologies of, of science and, and religion. And what's really interesting, I think, about Obia doctors in, for our purposes, is how they're taken up by Romantic period literature. Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge writes about them, Belinda Edgeworth writes about them, um, within a very theatricalizing discourse that seeks to suggest that they have um, a kind of contagious, a contagious theatrical power. So these Romantic writings, I just put one very short extract from uh, an ode by the dissenting minister William Shepherd uh, um, up on screen, just so you can see one small example of how these people are being being represented in the Shepherd period. And this extract, you see a kind of silent, um, captive, or literary captive in this case, crowd who have come together in secret. These Obia practices are illegal. They've come to witness this awe-inspiring. Um, <coughs> speak to them about the, the prophecies and potentials of revolution on the colonial plantation. And the speaker works his magic on stage through this very sort of convulsive rhetorical and physical um, performance. Um, uh, the shuddering captives throng, breath repressed and straining eye they wait, um, which, which impacts on the bodies of the audience through that kind of shuddering, convulsive um, um, performance and holds a very tangible threat of revolution in the context of the Haitian Revolution and the French Revolution that are kind of going on in the background here. So the power of the revolutionary conjurer, the Obia practitioner, over the collective mind and body reflects this association between African medical and spiritual practices and mental disorders. The practitioner's magical and verbal performances take hold in the credulous, uh, the superstitious, the weak-minded, and function as a kind of contagious disease of the imagination. So the practices are identified as performance, they're explicitly codified as performance, but their power could be dispelled through counter-performance, the example on the left of an early 19th century melodrama, and obia practitioners were taken up in melodrama and pantomime in this period, which 
diffuse the potential for revolution through uh, uh, melodramatic sentimentality and through and through comedy in pantomime. Um, so the idea of the contagious and the potentially fatal performance of the Obia practitioner um, highlights the very uh, anti-theatrical stance of the colonial authorities who dismiss the Obia doctor as a purveyor of the pretend. Um, but on the plantation, the response from the colonial, colonial authorities is equally theatrical. The most notorious punishment for the, pra the illegal practice of Obia being um, a, a, a description of ele electrical tortures, um, which are performed in front of uh, an audience of enslaved people for the express purposes of um, creating kind of psychological control and fear, fear of participating in these practices. Right. Um, so those spectacular punishments for Obia emerge as part of a culture of staged violence to exert political colonial control. Planters are using, um, and slave owners are using theatrical terror as part of the effort to win psychological influence. So just as the obia practitioner is imagined as staging knowledge to a kind of credulous and superstitious audience, so uh, the slave owners are attempting to dispel that theatrically produced power of oaths and spells and indeed of material props by performing their own sort of spectacular acts of magical and technological mastery. So... The spectacular plantation violence taps into the same model of performance, performance as having material effects as well as ideological and spiritual effects, um, but it positions itself as anti-contagion because it operates to prevent the spread of this physical and mental disorder of, of African-Caribbean belief as well as the contagion of uh, revolutionary fervour. So, Colonial epistemology refuses superstition and acts of pretend, equating this practice with theatrically produced delusion, but paradox paradoxically it uses spectacle to compel belief in the power of the colonial project. Um, and this, this generic codification of Obiera's theatre goes through various stages of Gothic <coughs> and, and, and pantomime and melodrama, viewing fiction-making devices as threatening but also exposing Obiad to this model of, of, um, of counter-performance. Um, so the, the relationship between the performance of the Obia practitioner, their fictionalization, um, and finally the spectacular punishments emerge as part of a broader spectrum of colonial performance that is invested in ideas about physical and moral um, contagion. And these... Um, these uh, performances here and the theatrical tortures to which the Obia people are subjected suggest this quite complicated interplay between the real and the spectacular. Theatre is artifice, but colonial performance to a terrified public is also imagined to have these very material, um, material effects. And that comes from um, within historical context that links, I think, in... in interesting ways to different things we've heard about today um, emerges from the understanding of the proximity between illusion and superstition and physical disorder and the kind of physical power of false beliefs. So from that um, very specific example I think there are um, various ways in which I think we might draw this out to think about things I've, I've heard about um, as I've been listening today. 
And one is um, the linguistic processes through which languages of contagion, discourses of contagion, work to pathologise certain types of bodies and peoples and questions about how modern identities are medicalised. Um, so for me, that interest comes in the kind of colonial language of contagion. So just like the modern day vernacular in which I can give someone the flu, but the flu is also caught, suggests that diseases can passively spread but also actively invade. There is that kind of colonising rhetoric of medical language that I think is, is quite interesting to think about here. Um, and we might want to ask about how the body of the other is positioned within medicalising discourse, how the understanding of bodies as agents of their own disease helps to pathologise um, certain groups of people, and how the idea of cultural acts as contagious performances articulates uh, moments of encounter between different belief systems and forms of knowledge, as well as the models of power and social interaction at stake in particular um, political situations. So for me, ideas about race and contagion are particularly important, um, but I'd be really interested to open that up and think about the ways in which different kinds of others are constituted through uh, discourses of contagion that are grounded in, in different models of, of performance. Um, and the second thing I want to pick up on um, in relation to discussions from this morning is um, an idea about models of, of the interactive performance of contagious feeling, like the contagious clapping um, and the contagious laughter that we heard, heard about earlier this morning. Um, that understanding of uh, theatrical models of exchanges between people that transmit ideas and feelings and trigger uh, psychological and, and often involuntary physical responses. Um, and in my period, that would be described in terms of sympathy, I think, the 18th century concept of, of sympathy, um, which was a specifically visual phenomenon. So Adam Smith, in his Theory of Moral Sentiments, talks about, he gives two interesting examples. One is seeing a dancer on a slack rope kind of writhe and twist the body, and so the, the audience involuntarily writhes and twists in response. And the other is you see a beggar in the street um, with running sores and open wounds and you start itching your own skin because you, you feel you have, you have caught this disease somehow. Um, so in my period, that is an explicitly visual phenomenon. Sympathy is visual. And I think it would be interesting to think about ways in which that differs for other people. Peter was talking about um, sympathy and fellow feeling this morning and I got the impression actually that it was a very different model um, and also in terms of the French the French horror that we heard about on the on the same panel and the use of blood that was making people faint and we talked about it there as haemophobia and I think um, uh, certainly 18th century sympathy that model would offer an alternative explanation of that kind of uh, uh, physical response because there it wouldn't it wouldn't be about haemophobia it would be about imagining yourself in the position of somebody who was undergoing that, that same physical suffering. So you'd be fainting because you were imagining yourself in their shoes rather than the, the sight of blood in itself. Um, and then lastly, the, the sort of visual model of the exchange of feelings links to one final point to draw out from um, Seda's really interesting question about dissident performance earlier. Um, the model that I'm working with of the sort of contagious revolutionary imagination that is communicated through this public public performance is 
very much historically situated. So Edmund Burke is talking about the potential contagion of the French doctrines from the French Revolution, and that is discussed through ideas of performance. So the guillotine and those acts of public violence are thought to be potentially contagious in terms of English um, political context. And similarly, the, the, the slave revolution in Haiti is being talked about in medicalised terms that are allied to anxieties <coughs> about revolutionary um, crowds. So I think it would be really interesting to, to, to draw out later um, a discussion of um, in, re in relation to Seda's point about um, ways of looking at performance in terms of the transmission of, of political ideas. Matthew Weart and my background is in law, which also is not a discipline, um, but a kind of hated thing, uh, in, a, in a way. And, and the question of transdisciplinarity, which Joe mentioned at the beginning, is very important because in a sense now, within the academy, it's impossible to imagine being a lawyer, as people might understand, as an academic subject. You, it's partly because law is a, is a parasitic um, thing which feeds on other things, um, on society, on people, on their fears, on their hurts, on their disappointments, on the things that go wrong in their lives. And it is performed. Um, contracts are performed things. I remember when I was an undergraduate student at university, I studied Roman law. Uh, and we had to perform contractual um, Roman contracts conveying a beast of burden or a slave. In fact, my classmate Susan was the beast, always the beast of burden, and she was always the one conveyed. Uh, and the praetor, the, the person who determined whether or not a contract of sale had happened, you did that by ringing a bell, and it was a very performed moment, and the ringing of the bell was sonorous, moment was one where everybody heard that there had now been an agreement reached. And then, of course, as we come forward through to jury trial and, and um, the, the development of the modern uh, jury trial, the whole of justice, the whole of dispute resolution has had a history which is organised through performance. So I think there are lots of obvious, very uh, obvious parallels, in a sense, between theatre and the performance of law in, in, in its adjudicative function, um, certainly, but I don't really want to talk about that today, but I was just thinking about it as people were talking. It might prompt some, some discussion later, and I'm very happy to have a conversation that, because this is about contagion, and I was thinking as I was listening to the idea about why, you know, how people respond to you know, the, the sympathy and the scratching of the arm and the, and the empathy that we were asked explicitly, I think, in a sense, by, by Stephen to, to engage with, with, the, with, the, with being told about the fact that the people we were watching had died in the film, and of course they would have died by now, mostly anyway, because we're now in 2010, with a particular story of, of, of the genocide and, and, the, and, the, and the camps and everything, and the, and, the, and the fact that you're watching this injustice being performed again and again and again, the potential that and the effect that that might have on us is is obviously very moving. But I was particularly concerned that as I listened to my peers talking very knowledgeably about that and having slides, you know, 
performing their, their scholarship. Um, I'm, I haven't got any slides today. Um, I thought I'd just talk. And so I made some notes because everybody has to have a bit of a security blanket, but I'm just going to go <laughs> and talk. Um, now I, contagion, the reason I'm interested in this particularly is that my research area is on the impact of law and legal systems, particularly criminal law and criminal justice systems and processes on HIV prevention and on people living with HIV. It's so, something I've been working on for about 20 years and it was prompted, um, as all meant much good scholarship is, either by a very good teacher who gives you one idea in A class where you think I want to spend the rest of my life studying that. Or, in my case, my best school friend, um, Mark, who died of an AIDS-related illness in 1992 before uh, treatment became available. And I was 18 in 1981, 1982. I happened to have been an undergraduate, exact contemporary Bridget, there, sitting in the background there. So it's lovely. We haven't seen each other for 35 years. <laughs> Here we are in the same room, which is wonderfully serendipitous. But, you know, Bridget will remember, many of the people who were sort of 18 or 19 then, my, as a gay man, my entire adult life was organised around this issue of a thing, a virus, which was over there, was over in America, but we were kind of conscious of it, aware of it, and, but we were immune, and I'm going to come back to the issue of immunity, because of course that's a very important legal concept, as well as a very important physiological concept. And we were young, and we were immune, and we were, we were, we were going to be safe forever, and of course it gradually became clear that this was not, in fact, the case, and that somehow our sexuality, somehow our practices, something about did we take certain kinds of drugs, were we, you know, were we taking poppers, this, this was all implicated, our membranes, our, our bodies became, as it were, suspect in a sense, it wasn't affecting straight people then, that wasn't the discourse, it wasn't heterosexual, women were certainly erased entirely from the story, despite the fact that we know, when we look back at the history of the epidemic, and look at the erased history of HIV in, in southern Africa, uh, which was, you know, 1970s, 1960s, 1950s, 1940s. There were Kaposi sarcoma um, cases in, in southern Africa, which were very clearly associated with uh, immune deficiency. Um, but, of course, there was no money. There was no interest. It became interesting when otherwise healthy white gay men, young gay men, became ill in California, and then it became something, became defined in relation to a sexuality, in relation to an ethnicity, and in relation to a sexuality. And uh, after I came here, so I started my research work in, in financial services regulation, white collar crime, how bizarre is that? Uh, and then when I came to, when Mark died and I got my first academic job, which was here at Birkbeck, my first lectureship in 1992, I decided how incredible was this? I could spend my life uh, trying to think about how I could, in some sense, honor Mark's uh, memory and nobody was doing any work on law and HIV, and nobody really thought, well, what, what would that be about? And what it became about for me was a very interesting and has proven to be a very fruitful area of research which continues to fascinate me, <coughs> which is because it in, in brings in legal history, legal theory, physiology, um, post-humanism, uh, feminism, uh, materiality, uh, conceptual thinking, and legal doctrine all come together in, in this subject. And so I just want for a few minutes to, I suppose, reflect on some core issues which I think might be of interest to you and which you might want to talk about later. Uh, and it's a little bit of a potted history, but if we go back before, and I know this is a kind of contested uh, term, but a bit like person, I'm going to use it just for a short term, de-enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And if we go back to uh, the 16th century and, and, and earlier, 
Um, what we find is that the body, the way in which the body is represented and, and understood, is as a kind of chaotic, osmotic uh, thing into which things flow and flow out, and there's feces and there's disease, and people die and they get, they get sores. And this is God, or it's the fates, or it's the environment. It's, it's, it's out there, and people are implicated in the environment. They're very much part of an ecology which unifies, in a sense, them with their, with their surroundings, their environment. And there's no control over it. And what becomes very interesting, and the, the law of that time is, is not associated with the way we think of it now as being about control and responsibility and accountability. Um, murder, un until very late, was an offence which was determined by something called malice prepons, which, which sounds as though it's about forethought, which sounds about that thinking, but it isn't. It's about planned killing. People were guilty of murder if they waited behind a wall and then hit somebody over the head. Uh, it was the planning, it was the action, and you inferred their culpability from the way in which they did it, the environment, the context, the cir circumstances in which it happened. Uh, and there are still resonances of that uh, to this day in some of the defences. Uh, to murder. Um, as we move through, again, this is really potted through sort of to the, the um, sort of 17th, 18th century, what we find, Descartes, the idea that there is a mind, there is a will, that the body is somehow in, a, able to control the physical body and, is sub, uh, and the body is subject to the will's control, that the body itself, this, this kind of chaotic, gushing thing, becomes shored up uh, and becomes constructed as having these edges that, that are that, that liminality, that kind of hybridity is kind of is, is is secured up. And that's terribly important for capitalism. And it's terribly important uh, and reaffirmed in much sort of 18th century philosophical, moral philosophical thought. Because if you are going to have capitalism, then not only do you need to have individuals who are uh, you know are useful but they need to be accountable and responsible for their actions. You can't have a contract unless you have a will and an agreement and a sense of evidence-based um, uh, willed behaviour. And the individual human being becomes constructed, so, well, I'm going to be very specific, men uh, become autonomous. Um, uh, children and wives, of course, can be beaten and killed and, and slaves, but um, men, and of course it's men that... That, that made the history and, and created the history and made the jurisprudence, started to think about um, autonomy at the same time as we start to think about human rights. And the individual human being becomes, uh, as it were, associated, mapped onto a concept of autonomy. And so the material body evaporates and we become a conceptual framework, if you like, <coughs> where autonomy is exercised or not exercised. So that consent, if I, if I were to touch this gentleman's hand without his consent, that would technically be an assault. I need to get the consent in order for that to be recognised as lawful. Um, if I don't, the least touching is an, is an assault on him. And then we, uh, as that becomes uh, firmed up, um, this becomes real. As I say, it becomes reified. Autonomy almost becomes uh, a, and it bound up, of course, with human rights, individual human rights. That's an individualised narrative. Um, now, this, of course, is, is, is so much <coughs> potted history. What's fascinating, of course, is it's bunkum. Right? It's, I was going to, can I, it's bollocks, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, and because, and this really started to get um, 
ex expressed properly and critiqued by, by sort of feminists in the 1960s, feminist theorists in the 60s and 70s, um, who started to say autonomy is no good. Autonomy is not women's lived experience. Women give birth, women care, women nurture. Um, relationships, sociality, intimacy. Um, um, we, we nurture our children with our breasts. We create life in our bodies. We, our experience is not of autonomy, and autonomy is a patriarchal uh, negative uh, concept, and we need to break it down. And they started to, I'm generalizing, but many people started thinking about integrity and about material experience of what had been thought of autonomy. As, as, as autonomy, and it was integrity that needed to be respected. This, of course, is also very problematic because we don't have integrity either. Uh, if you start to, and this is where the HIV story comes in and where we might start talking about performance and contagion and the way that the law responds to that. Because what HIV shows us, and any other transmissible disease shows us, is that we do not have edges which are shored up. We do not have that security. We do, don't. Whenever we are in an intimate contact, when our body fluids mix, there is always the potential for us to become another person after that encounter. We might become a pregnant person if we're a woman and we're fertile. We might become a, a person with a disease if we come into contact with that disease. We um, move through these states so that the idea of there being an autonomous body, um, the kind of a humanist ideal of the physical, healthy, muscular, disease-free body is a myth that's reinforced very useful for imperialist uh, plans and projects, uh, but is, is simply factually untrue. And we have now moved from this idea of the, so that that molar body, the one which has this kind of you know, big, you know, vi visible, visible quality of a human being, is now broken down and we start to see and understand that things move between bodies. The law responds to this by trying to shore it up again. The law tries to say, uh, right, okay, um, somebody has... Um, had sex with somebody else and they were HIV positive and they didn't uh, disclose, this is English criminal law I'm talking about, didn't disclose this fact their partner HIV moves from this body to that body. If you can prove that they were aware that there was a risk that this might happen, you can punish them and you can send them to jail. And you can continue to do this. And some, uh, some, uh, some uh, jurisdictions, only, merely if you expose somebody to the risk of it, because we are entitled to be disease free. We are entitled to assume that another person is intact, whole, and that our body also is something which should be respected as having that kind of um, that, that edge to it, uh, which the law must reinforce. If it's broken down, we must punish and hold people accountable for that. Now, there are many, many dimensions to this debate. I am fundamentally opposed to the criminalisation of HIV, and, and fundamentally opposed to it because. I want us, in some sense, not necessarily to return to pre-modern sewers and gutters and feces flying about, but because there's a part of me that wants to return to the idea of the human being being understood as part of a broader ecology, rather than as an individual shorn-up thing. Um, and I think that's important, because when I go back to Mark, or I think of my friends living with HIV now, I'm not living with HIV, um, uh, but when I think of the many friends that I've worked with, um, who are living with HIV, I don't think of them as abnormal. I don't think of them as harmed people. They don't construct themselves as being largely harmed people. They are people who are living with an environmental phenomenon which lives in some people and not in other people. Whether somebody is infected with HIV, with the drugs we have available, is an effect not just of will, uh, even if it is willed, but whether you have access to drugs, 
whether you're able to suppress your viral load by having a national health system, whether you live in this country or that country, um, and whether you are wealthy and able to access these things and about your civil, political and uh, status as much <coughs> as you about bodies. And that if we don't, if we start to reimagine ourselves um, as, if you like, a part of a broader ecology, at, at, not necessarily at one with our environment, but recognising that this is simply, I'll sort of summarise it as shit happens. Um, what happens? Before 1995, before um, antiretroviral therapy became uh, available and accessible, at least to some people, when people discovered they were HIV positive, they didn't go to the police. Why didn't they go to the police? They were more concerned about living. Because you can live well with HIV, that this becomes an option. And it becomes an option and something that people pursue because of the stigma associated with living with it. And the stigma associated with living living with HIV is directly in effect of the reinforcing of the notion that there should be a natural, free and entirely intact body. And spoiled bodies, spoiled identities are ones which we don't want to be associated with. And I keep coming back to Mary Douglas and her anthropology on this and, and the idea of pollution and dirt and the fact that, we, and, and um, uh, Christave and the abject and the idea of, there are lots of really good theor theorists who are working and have worked, of course, on, on this idea of, of, of the disgust, the revulsion we have when we're confronted with those things which are not concrete, which are not secure and stable. And, and, and fluidity, osmosis, porosity are things which lead us to feel um, you know, um, revolted and, and sickened. And I suppose that's sort of all I really wanted to say, other than to say... Finally, on, on, the on the performance point, because you asked us to reflect perhaps a bit on that, is that people are constantly, and certainly people living with HIV, have to perform an identity. They have to either choose to disclose or not disclose their status to other people at very, very critical moments in intimate relationships. And the interesting things that are happening now with drugs and the way that the, um, and, and accessibility is that disclosure of status, which used to be disclosure of risk, is no longer that. Disclosure of status doesn't tell you whether you present a risk to somebody else because you may be on treatment, you may be uninfectious in effect by virtue of your undetectability on your viral load. Um, it's actually disclosure of not knowing your status, which is more risky, um, or disclosing that you are somebody who carries with you sort of transmissible viral load. But even so, there is a constant negotiation and performance which has to happen uh, which is reinforced also, not in relation, just in relation to HIV now, but some of you will be aware of the gender non-disclosure cases that have come up in the last few years, where we see a kind of reactionary turn in the law to the idea, of, of the idea that you need to and are responsible for declaring yourself, confessing yourself to people, in order that the relationship you have with them is in some sense true and, uh, uh, as it were, that you are accountable for any default, uh, any faulty dimension to your nature and that is a, a worrying term re reinforced I think in the way find lots of examples of it you go to a through security at an airport and if you are somebody whose skin is a different color or you happen to be wearing a hijab you have to perform your innocence actively um, and you are suspicious uh, you are you know people have a right to be suspicious of you until you reveal yourself to be non-risky um, and this is something which I think uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a dominant trope, if you like, in contemporary society and, and something which I think has significant dramatical, dramatical, dramatic potential. That's what I'll stop. Mm.
over a wide range of uh, periods, media, concepts. We've got, we're running slightly short of time. Um, <laughs> perhaps the Fintons say so we could take 10 minutes, Fintons, are you? Yeah? Let me open it out. Um, questions for individual um, speakers or perhaps observations about the interdisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity of what we've heard or anything at all. Let me open it up. Oh well, just I mean very quickly. I mean what you say resonates a lot. I was one of the one of the books that I remember reading when I was uh, twenty, when I thought I might, you know, actually thought I might be an inter you know, be interested in being intellectual. <laughs> it's sort of gone by the board now, really, in a way. Working actually working in the university. <laughs> um, but uh, what was Bataille's um, uh, eroticism, and I, I keep coming back to this extraordinary. Discussion. This is in the context of work I've done on uh, the law's resp response to uh, consent in the context of SM, uh, sex. And one of the things that's very interesting there is about um, the way that the law responds to blood being in the wrong place or, or urine being used for pleasure or, or uh, you know, a sort of pleasure in the waste of a body that's a non-economic use of, of, of bodies. Um, and the using up, if you like, of bodies not for productive labour. And he says, uh, we want a world where the, which is turned uh, inside out and upside down. The truth of eroticism is treason. And I think this is a really important thing. It goes back to the point you're making about this idea that, in a sense, the erotic or, or that, that, that moment is something which is defined in relation to its chaos, in relation to its uh, breaking out of these kind of formal or expected norms or, or modes of behaviour and, and the pleasure in the body and its superfluity, if you like, or, or, or letting out uh, the contained in, in it. And I don't know whether that is...
part of, it might be an interesting uh, text to read in the context and you may very well have read it before, so if you haven't read it or, or go back and re re revisit that. There's one thing I'd like to raise about your idea that um, we should be we should be breaking down, as I see from what you're saying, we should be breaking down this idea that somehow we're responsible for what is in us and what we transmit to other people, that we exist in an ecosystem where things flow and we don't necessarily need to define ourselves as having hard boundaries where we're responsible for everything inside mm -hmm. and for keeping other stuff outside. Because um, you say that with, with HIV and it makes a lot of sense to me. I wonder how you perceive that for sort of the sort of social contagion, like the stuff I was talking about with applause or something. So if we take sort of the, the London riots from a few years ago, you know, a lot of people get caught up in something like that. Mm. They see action on the street. You know, something changes in their psyche as a result. Mm. And then they commit acts which are technically against the law and which they perhaps wouldn't have done mm. if that ambience hadn't been surrounding them. Mm. So is there an equivalent point that you could say that there's you're not responsible for necessarily the thoughts or the psychological uh, effects that permeate you as well. I'm going to ask Steve yes. rather than me to do that. I think that might be your more your. Yeah. Um, well, I think they're really good examples. Um, I mean, you can class them all as, in a sense, psychotic states of mind. That is, states of mind in which the conventional boundaries. Um, are, are broken apart and in some ways it's exhilarating I mean there are moments when the passion that's aroused by being um, entering into the um, state of total fluidity where you lose yourself in something is completely exhilarating it's, um, the enjoyment involved in that is enormously attractive and at the same time it's kind of spiralling, the sense of spiralling out of control is also terrifying and li living on that Living with that balance, I think, is um, something which you know, we, we experience quite often. Um, we, I mean, I think people experience it quite often, and it's always got that sort of push-be-pull-you element to it, of wanting to participate into it, wanting to lose yourself in it, and at the same time wanting to hold back and maintain some notion of having separate identities. So I think that the theorization of that, which occurs across different disciplines, is, you know, is very... Um, uh, well, it, the theorization of that cuts across different disciplines, but it's always an attempt to express something about that, am I going to disappear, what's the enjoyment of disappearing thing, the thing that Freud called death drive, yeah. to my mind, you know, that moment when Freud says, um, every, you know, the, the, this is like a, what he calls a Nirvana principle, it's like this sort of attraction towards collapsing into some state where you no longer exist, um, constantly pulled into that state, and at the same time, of course, resisting it through, the, through creating the complexity. So it's interesting, actually, just a, just a moment on that, it's interesting to think about that shift many people will know in, 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 in Freud from um, having an opposition between sexual and ego-preservative ego drives to an opposition between life drives and death drives. But really the, 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 the opposition that Freud always works with is between um, bounded and unbounded. Mm -hmm. So in life, and life drives and death drives, the difference is not really erotic because death has also got its sexual components to it. Not just in Woody Allen, except there's only two things you can be sure of. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, um, but it's, it's rather that there's a, this sort of sensation that there is a, a pull all the time towards the unbounded, where it all, this all, all, all um, separateness and discriminations dissolve. And life itself is a kind of both a, a 
a set of complexities that move you away from passivity, but also it's a binding process in which things come together in order. And also, I think, sorry, just to finish, I think that that, that perhaps relates to your really interesting point um, about this, uh, the opposition between contagion and contract. I mean, in my example, the contagion occurs as um, a result of the breakdown of a certain kind of contract. There is a literal contract. These two, I mean, that cost didn't show you the film, but these two men at the start of the film, the fathers of these, of the bride, of the lovers, they make a contract with one another before their children are even born. And this contract cannot be fulfilled. And indeed, in the, there's a trial involving the dead and the living where the rabbi who's responsible for the trial says that a contract made before people are born is not a legal contract, but it's still recognized. So it's a it's con continuous ambivalence about what it means to make a contract um, and how you can enforce a contract, which is at a sort of erotic level, uh, and what happens when that contract breaks down. And so here, as I said, I think contagion operates as a consequence of the loss of the predictability and the structure given by contract. I, this is not a very well-formed thought. I'm really interested by your um, discussion of, of sympathy, 18th century sympathy, which I guess is now what we would call empathy. And it is, in fact, a social contract, essentially. I'm feeling what you're feeling, therefore we're one. And I just wonder if you, the legal progression that you've talked about, which is you know increasingly to to um, build walls around the individual and to focus on individual rights mm -hmm. and etc., has made that more or less impossible um, because that that social contract of of feeling something not as phobia, and you said you know it's not hemophobia or it's it's actually my feeling the same pain, disgust, misery, <coughs> whatever that, that you're feeling. Um, and I feel like we've become very, the, the, the lines that, that you described drawing, having been drawn by law and, and social processes between individuals as a part of this sort of um, uh, increasing unification of, of that's, not, that's not at all the word I'm looking for, you know what I'm talking about, making ourselves unitary elements. Um, makes that more and more impossible. But is there any prospect of actually reversing that process so that instead of drawing everything as a me versus you phobia, you know, if it's if it's not in my realm, then it's oppositional into because of this social contract, what's in your realm is also in my realm. Did that make any sense mm -hmm. at all? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, th I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, I think in some ways I've misrepresented the 18th century. I mean, I think it's a really interesting idea to think about sympathy as a model of oneness, but actually I think it is more rooted in what Matthew was talking about, the creation of autonomy in the individual, actually, I, think in the, I think, in the period. Um, I think it's... Yeah, sorry, I'll no, interrupt. No, go, Peter. Go. Uh, all I was going to say is that since you mentioned my my paper yeah. in relation to sympathy, I, I gave some sort of gesture to, to Gustave Le Bon, who I'm sure still knows a lot more about, but that panic about the individual dissolving into the crowd yeah. is in part being negotiated with this question of sympathy and what happens to the individual body uh, in its reaction to being surrounded by other bodies. Somehow it, 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 it loses that sense of agency, it, it, it behaves 
against or without any sense of individual self-determination, but in tune with a group of, uh, of people that it's not explicitly communicating with. This is not a sort of one-to-one -one process of identification and scratching your arm against somebody else. It's much more along the lines of being outlined with, uh, with applause. You don't applaud because your next door neighbor is applauding. You applaud because applause seems to be a, sort of in the air. You are a, you're a part, of the, uh, part of the applause. So I thought, yeah. Can I, I, I mean, I'm, just one thing that struck me as you were talking, I mean, I think this is pernicious, uh, you know, that this, what I was talking about is absolutely pernicious and finds, uh, you know, resonance and direct expression across a r range of sort of social phenomena up to and including, and it's no accident in the sense that the 18th, 19th century, where I, the period where I'm talking about this real f firming up of <coughs> autonomy and, and individual rights happens, which is seen as a kind of progressive, uh, you know, against religion, about the idea of the human... Is it maps onto war being organised around the nation state and affirmation of the nation state, the geography and parsing up, so that you become identified with a political entity, which is a country, which is a state which has a border and an edge. And if you think about what I was saying now in the context of present-day politics, you know what we are seeing is that the kind of, uh, sort of conservative, right-wing, you know, fascistic politics in relation to Brexit. And, and some of the arguments that are made around the foreigners, around the exclusion, is that we should be immune from that. We should be entire, intact, whole, a kind of almost like a humanist ideal body as a, as a nation state, you know, which should be white and it should be free of foreigners. And the foreigners that come should actually learn English, know the rules of cricket and win St David's Day if they're going to pass their nationality test, mm. such that you then look at the relationship between the UK and, and the European Union. The union is, and the European Union is a kind of progressive thing in some sense, in the sense of an attempt to synthesise a whole range of different cultures, ideas. Uh, it, of course, then, of course, creates a different border, which we are now seeing, which is a kind of trade border, <laughs> because nothing can exist, as it sense, without a negotiated border and an edge, which becomes, in some sense, a problem which has to continually be renegotiated, either as an individual country or as an individual person. Uh, and that's, I, I, th I see lots of parallels which have political as well as individual, possibly psychosocial. Yeah, we're desperately running out of time. Yeah, um, but can I just want to say, really strongly to mind as you were just talking about the sympathy versus sympathy to empathy trajectory is a, a different word, um, compassion. And I was thinking about, um, some of you will know the work of Bracha Ettinger, um, who's a psychoanalyst and artist, but the, the structure of much of our thinking is that uh, people are separate and there's an issue to be thought about in how they might relate to one another. Um, and what um, some psychoanalysis does, such as Ettinger, is to argue it the other way around. That people are combined, and the problem is, how do you... How do you create um, problem people are faced with? Is how do you maintain that combinedness at the same moment, at the same time as separating out? So in a sense, the um, you could say um, the contagion comes first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the yeah. Contagion comes yeah. first, and then gets structured in certain ways, um, often defensively mm -hmm. in the way that you're just describing now, Matthew. Um, the fantasy that somehow we can build a wall in the middle of the English Channel and all the goodies are going to be kept in and all the baddies are going to be kept out. Or in Mexico. Yeah, or wherever. <coughs> you know, it's a part of that is the fantasy. Um, and and Esther's idea about the matrixia, which is this a capacity that each one of us has because precisely because at one point, as it's just before birth, we have been part of someone else. 
yeah. that capacity is a kind of psychic capacity as well as, as well as a physical capacity that each one is born with. And so the question is, what happens to that? You know, how does that get um, cut up into different bits? How do people become separated rather than how is it that we, we learn to be in connection with one another? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take one more very quick question and then I'm going to do that all for things to bring it to a close. Take the one at the back. Sorry, Andy. May I just pick up on that? Probably a little temptation to disperse. Um, and consciousness is a conversation about um, a social contract or, or the kind of the implied social contract of laughter and, or applause, like you've given us something, we, there is somehow a kind of tacit agreement that the nature of that contract is, is a debt. And so you get, like in the work of philosophers like Jojo Gammon and Esposito was talking about this afternoon, like the claim that the founding thing of that community is is debt, you're exposed to debt, you're exposed to an accountability to others. So what forms community isn't singular individuals coming together in harmony, it's radical exposure. So your first grounding is this radical exposure against which immunity is this desperate attempt to prop yourself up and secure yourselves against other people, against community. So and I guess I like that idea. I mean, my question was going to be, can we go back to the idea of contagion or exposure first? I think that's the claim you get from those philosophers is to say that is the foundation of like active community is we are exposed to each other. Yeah. And everything that follows is a desperate attempt to kind of cope with that horrific reality, which seems to be the very threat to what we are, but paradoxically it is what we are. Good place to finish. I think. <laughs> <laughs>